God, I thank you for the wonderful sounds of children who are uh, going to, uh, to learn about you and to learn about what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus, a child of God. What a great gift that is. And I thank you for uh, the chance to gather with other followers of Jesus and to open your word together and, and hear what you have to say to your people. I pray that, that you would speak clearly, that you would open uh, my mouth to speak your words, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear uh, truly the message that you have for your church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, I, I'm a sucker for clicking on uh, headlines that I see uh, online about the church and different cultural trends. And this is particularly true uh, if uh, somehow it mentions uh, millennials, the generation that I'm kind of at the, the upper end of that I just fit into. Uh, so when I saw an article this past week uh, that's titled, uh, Millennials Lose Faith in Churches uh, in U.S. News and World Report, I had to click on it and immediately uh, read it. Uh, the headline, Millennials Lose Faith in Churches, is a summary of uh, data collected by the Pew Research Center that was just published uh, recently. And and they did uh, research on attitudes uh, of uh, different generations to a bunch of different cultural institutions and things like that, looking at banks and, and small businesses and churches and religious organizations, a bunch of different things. And it was a very simple uh, questionnaire. It was, do you have a positive um, uh, attitude toward the impact of a particular organization or set of organizations on the uh, direction that the U.S. is headed right now? So it's, it's really, do you think this uh, organization has a positive impact or not? And they, they broke this down by generation. Uh, well, they did this five years ago, and they did it again uh, in 2015. So in 2010, millennials, my generation, was actually the most positive when it came to churches and religious organizations. 73% of us uh, thought that churches had a positive impact in the U.S., and that was the highest of any of the other generations. The other generations were in the 55 to 65 range. So we're very optimistic, very positive about the impact of the church. Now, just five years later, that went from 73% down to 55% of my generation who thinks that the church and, and religious organizations have a positive impact on the U.S. That's an 18% drop in just five years' time. It's almost one in five of my generation who used to think of churches and religious organizations in positive terms and have now lost faith in those organizations. Now, as someone who loves the church, this, of course, makes me sad. I believe that, that God has given the church the, the task of being a positive impact, having an eternal positive impact wherever we are. And so uh, the perception among my peers, at least, is that that's not happening. We're kind of losing our faith in the church's uh, ability to live up to its call. And this is sad, but at the same time, it's a call to action. I don't think this is a time to kind of like pity ourselves and feel bad or, or kind of wish for better days. I think this is a chance for us to, to take a hard look at ourselves and to see to what degree it's right that we are not following the call of God and living faithful to the calling that Christ has given us. Um, the church, and when I say the church, I'm not just talking about an organization or a building or anything like that. The church is the collection of people who follow Jesus. And the church always faces the temptation to lose the values that make us distinctive, to lose the values of the cross, and to lose the, the beautiful sense of community that's formed by those values and trade those in for something that's much less. 
One reason I love the book that we're studying together, the book of 1 Corinthians in the Bible, is because it brings us back to the foundation. It brings us back to the cross. It brings us back to Christ. And then it develops a, a picture of what life under the cross really looks like. Our text this morning, we get a beautiful exposition of what the church looks like as it lives up to its calling under the cross and under the values of Christ. So wherever we might be tempted to kind of give up on the church or despair at the church's ability to impact uh, the people around us and the culture around us, this is a, a great passage to go to because it not only gives hope, but it also gives us a corrective. The passage that we're looking at this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 31. If you haven't turned there yet, this would be a great time to do that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can borrow one. And if you don't know where 1 Corinthians 12 is, that's fine. It's found on page 1136 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The series we're in uh, is is called uh, The Gospel for a Messy Church. And today, this letter that's written to a messy church gets a picture of a much more beautiful church, a church, uh, a better way of, of living together at the church. Now, the passage, the topic of the passage that we're looking at is spiritual gifts. And if you don't know what spiritual gifts are, don't panic. We'll talk about what those are in a minute here. So that's the topic that that Paul is addressing here. But really, all throughout, the church is the the primary focus. It's front and center all through here. So we're going to organize this passage as three things that we need to know about the church. That's kind of my clickbait title for you. Three things you need to know about the church. You can go and you click on that, right, if you saw that? I hope, maybe. No? Okay. Well, the first thing we need to know about the church is that it is given gifts by God for the common good. Now, remember that this is a letter written a couple thousand years ago from a church leader named Paul to a first-generation group of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. Listen to how Paul begins this discussion of the topic of gifts given by God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters... I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, as as Paul's turning to this subject that would have been of great interest to this particular gathering of Christians, he's starting off with the basics. Um, they have to remember that at one point in time, they were drawn astray. They used to be misled. And so he's going to start them with a basic foundational premise. Whatever they are going to learn about spiritual gifts, they have to understand that the dividing point is about Jesus. Any supposed uh, powerful thing that denies that Jesus is king, that's not from God. But anything that's positive, anything that is from God is going to say, Jesus is Lord. He is king. So they have to start with that foundational point that this really comes down to Jesus. So what does he say about gifts? Look at verses 4 through 11 with me. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. 
to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now here's where we discover what spiritual gifts are. Here's where we can kind of define what a spiritual gift is. Uh, spiritual gifts are just talents or abilities or, or giftings that are given by God's Spirit for the good of the church. That's what spiritual gifts are. And we get a, a whole bunch of different examples of them in the text here from uh, verses uh, 8 through 10. It has a bunch of different examples. So that's what spiritual gifts are. Now, if you're looking at this and and you think of your own life and how God has gifted you and you don't see that gifting in this list, you don't have to panic. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just giving uh, examples. It's just uh, uh, kind of an exemplary kind of list. But as we think about gifts, there there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind here. Uh, One important thing to note is the source of these gifts. Where do these come from? Look again at at verse 4. Who gives these gifts? It is the Spirit who distributes them. In verse 6, it's the same God who is at work in these. Verse 7, the Spirit, it's a manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 11, it's the work of the one and the same Spirit. So spiritual gifts are identified as spiritual because they're given by the Holy Spirit. They're given by God's own Spirit. Now that's actually a really uh, big statement because it means that the church is empowered by God. I want you to think about that for a minute. That means that the church isn't just a collection of ordinary humans with with normal capacities and normal abilities and normal skills and gifts and things like that. The church is actually empowered supernaturally by God himself. And that's great because the church is commissioned by Jesus to proclaim this great news that, that God has sent his son to rescue the world. And not only are we given that commission, but we are empowered supernaturally by God's Spirit to be able to fulfill that commission that he's given us. So we have to remember where these gifts are coming from. They come from God himself. We're empowered by God. The other important thing to note here is the intended purpose of this gifting. Look again at verse 7. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's the reason. The reason is for the good of the body of Christ, for the good of the community of faith. So God empowers Christians not so that we feel good about ourselves or not so that others will notice us and pay attention to us. God empowers us for the good of the church, for the good of all of this. Paul's going to come back to this a couple chapters later in in chapter 14, and he's going to encourage them to, to be using their gifts in this way. He says this in 14.12. Try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. Similarly, in verse 26 of that same chapter, chapter 14, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This is the undergirding purpose for why God has gifted people within the church. So he supernaturally empowers us, and we should use that supernatural empowering for the good of the people around us. That's the first thing we learn about the church, that that God has gifted us by the power of his spirit for good. And this is really important as we think about gifting, as we think about the church, because if we lose sight of this, it could lead to a total wasting of those gifts and talents, a total waste of spiritual gifts. So think about it like this. I recently discovered that there are cars for sale that look like this. You can actually buy one of these as a used car. I saw a site online where you can actually do this. And for, for about $85,000, this car could be yours or it could be mine. 
So I don't have $85,000 lying around uh, to uh, just buy a car like this, but maybe one of you decided that you were going to take it upon yourselves to gift me this car. It's very generous of you. Thank you. So let's just go down that road uh, for a minute and think about uh, what I would do with a car like that. Well, I would probably not change my driving habits. So this is what it would look like if, if I woke up and, and tomorrow that car was in my driveway because of the generous gifting of one of you. Here's what would happen. I would get up and I would go start the car at 7.50 in the morning. Now let's pretend there's no snow, so let's not factor that in. And I'm going to try to find a way to get my oldest son in there safely. So I'm going to try to find a way to get a booster chair in there. And then I'm going to drive at 25 miles an hour from my house to Franklin Elementary School. 25 miles an hour in this beautiful car. It's going to be a great morning. And we're going to go through the drop-off line at Franklin Elementary School at uh, between zero to one mile an hour as I slowly pull along the line there. And I'm going to try, have to try to find a way of opening the door and getting my son safely out of that so he can get to school on time. And then I'm going to leave the parking lot of Franklin Elementary School and I'm going to turn onto the streets of Ludington and drive 25 miles an hour from Franklin Elementary School to the parking lot right out here outside the church. Now, I would probably turn some heads, right? There might be some people who were pretty impressed with the car that I was driving. But if you had gifted me that car, how would you feel about the way I was using it? It's a total waste, right? That's a car that's designed to go on racetracks at really fast speeds for a really long time. If all I'm going to do with that car is drive it within city limits and take my 1.4 mile commute with a stop at the elementary school at 25 miles an hour, it's a total and complete waste of a beautiful car. And so it is with gifting in the church. God has gifted us supernaturally by the power of his spirit not for our own good, not so that we could turn some heads, but for the good of the church, to build up the people around us. So as we think about the church, as we think about how God has gifted us, we have to keep in mind not only the source, that this is from God, but also its purpose, that this is for the good of the people around us. We should be building up the body of Christ around us. So that's the first thing we learn about the church. The church is empowered supernaturally by God for good. The second thing we need to know about the church is that it is made diverse by God. And here's where Paul sets up an analogy to help us understand the church better. Listen to, to how he uh, describes the church. This is starting in verse 12 of chapter 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So Paul now brings up this analogy of a body to uh, play off two parts of the reality of the church, the unity of the church and the diversity of the church. He starts off by establishing its unity. The followers of Jesus are baptized, he says, into one spirit. That's the beautiful reality of what happens when someone comes to Christ. Then it's symbolized by, by water baptism. So this is why we get so excited in the summers when we get to baptize people because it's a sign that God's spirit has been at work in their life so that they can confess, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is my king. And water baptism then is a, is a sign to the community of faith that this person has been made new. We, we lay them down into the water as a sign of their dying with Christ. We bring them back out of the water as the sign of their resurrection with Christ. And they become then marked as part of the community of faith, part of this one body together that has been made new. 
And what that means is that any human distinction that, that you might have been categorized by before, whether that's ethnicity or, or gender or any other things, those are secondary. Now you now belong to this one body. You are now part of one another. We become one. But that oneness doesn't mean we're all the same. Verse 14, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If the body were all one part, where would the body be? Now, the interesting thing about this is, is much of the book of 1 Corinthians is written as a corrective for those who think too highly of themselves, for those who are really proud. And in these verses, though, this is a corrective for those who think too little of themselves. See, some Christians look at themselves and, and feel like they have nothing to offer. So they, they look around and say, well, okay, that person can sing, that person can teach, that person always seems to have the right encouraging word to say, that person makes really great food. But then they look at themselves and they, they think, I don't know, all these other people, they, they seem wonderful, they have all these things to offer, all these great gifts and talents and abilities, and they're such wonderful people. And then and there's me, and I don't have anything great to offer. It's like you're back in, in grade school and they're picking teams at recess or in gym class and, and they're going through the really athletic kids really quickly. I'm going to get that person, I'm that person, just boom, boom, boom. And then you're still standing there as they start to hesitate and, and slow down. The, well, I guess I'll take that person. Yeah, I guess I'll take her. I guess I'll take him. That's fine. And you're one of those last people. And it's a terrible feeling. Some of you have been there. Some of you have felt that way in the church. If that's you, this is what you need to hear. The church needs you. You belong. God has gifted you in particular ways that without you, the church would be lacking something. The church needs you. Now, some of you don't believe that, or you might find it very difficult to believe, but that's what this text is saying. I mean, look, think about the body illustration here. A foot might not think of itself as a particularly attractive or flashy part of the body, but that doesn't mean that it's not part of the body and that it's not needed. And what would you do without a foot? Some of you have had uh, surgery and you've had to deal with life without a foot or life without a leg for a while. It's not a very convenient thing. It, it makes your body imbalanced and it seems like you're unhealthy. It's a really hard thing to deal with. Or the same thing with an ear. An, eye, an ear might feel like it's less valuable or less flashy than an eye, but it's still a necessary part of the body. It's a necessary part of a healthy body. A body that's missing any parts is imbalanced and it's unhealthy. Any missing part means that the body has lost important functions. And so it is with the church. Each one of us is needed. God has put us together for a reason. And without you, the church would be lacking something crucial. Now, if the body analogy doesn't work for you to see the, the necessity of you being part of this body, listen to why you are necessary. Again, verse 18. But in fact... God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I mean, this is the deciding factor, right? You belong to the body because God has chosen you. 
And he didn't so, do so begrudgingly like some uh, recessed dodgeball captain picking over the leftovers. He did so because he chose you before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything, he had chosen you. I mean, do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 1.4 is this great message. It's speaking of God. God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's when he chose you. He chose you because he knew everything that was going to unfold, and he knew who you are, who you would become, and he chose you to be part of his church, to be part of his family. He chose you. And there's no greater claim to belonging than that. Some of us need to hear this. The church needs you. You belong. You've been gifted by God and been made part of this community of faith. We need you. You are part of the church, and without you, the church would be missing a vital part. If we didn't need you, then God wouldn't have chosen you and brought you together with this community of faith. Without you, the church would be unhealthy. It would be imbalanced. It would be missing crucial functions. God has called us to himself. He has given us gifts by the power of his spirit, and he's now calling us to use what he has given us for the good of our church. Every one of us has gifts that are needed for us to be a healthy, vital, functioning community of faith. So the first thing we learn is that, that God has gifted the church for good. The second thing we need to learn about the church is that God has made us diverse and every single part is needed. And now the third thing we need to know about the church is that we are made one by God. Listen to how Paul continues to develop this imagery of the body, starting in verse 20. As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And this is really setting up for the next chapter here that we're going to hear next week where we are called to live in love with one another. But I first want to direct our attention to the corrective that's here. The corrective in the preceding verses is for those who perceive themselves as weaker or lesser members of the body. They need to understand that the church needs them, that they have value because God has chosen them and gifted them. The corrective here is for those who think they are too strong and independent to need the people around them. But this is really just as ridiculous as the supposedly lesser parts thinking that they don't really belong. 
An eye that claims that it doesn't need a hand is just spouting nonsense. A head that it says it doesn't need the feet doesn't know what it's talking about, right? This is just a, a, a ridiculous kind of statement, and we can see it in the working of the body. Every part of the body, the human body, needs the other parts. So my brain needs oxygenated uh, blood pumped to it from my heart. My heart needs the lungs to uh, fill up with oxygen and fill that blood with oxygen to be able to send it to the different parts of the body. My lungs need my airways, my nose, my, my mouth to be able to take in air from the outside world. All of the parts are interrelated. And that's about all I know about anatomy and physiology. Don't ask me anymore and don't fact check that. But the, whole, the point is all parts of the body are interrelated, but it's still part of the same body. We, we need each other. None of us is independent of that. See, some of us know we don't need to hear that the church needs us. We already kind of assume that. What we need to hear is that we need the church. See, there is no Christian on the face of the earth that doesn't need to be in community with other Christians. A Christian who is not connected to the church is like an eye that's trying to live independent of the human body. That eye wouldn't last a day. And neither would you or I. We need the church. We need the body of Christ because God has made us one. Here's why. Look again at verse 22. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now that's a profound statement that's challenging everything we think we know, right? If we're going to label something as weak and yet God is labeling that as indispensable, And that's true because of the choice of God. Look at verses 24 to 26. God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The reason that you need the church is the same reason why The church needs you. God has put us together. This is the design of God. This isn't some arbitrary grouping or some humans trying to figure out how to live together. God has put us together exactly as he wanted us to be. He he called us to faith in Jesus, and God's Spirit worked in our hearts so that we believed this fantastic news that, that God sent him to rescue us. And now God has drawn us together into a community of people to live together and to live out this great uh, gospel message that he's given us. He's given us different gifts and abilities by the power of his spirit for the good of all of us. We need each other. We belong together. God has made us diverse. We need all the diversity, but he has made us one, and we need to live out that oneness and the unity that he's given us. Now, here's where things get a little dicey. You might agree with everything that I just said, or at least uh, on a surface level, uh, think that you agree with what's being said in 1 Corinthians 12 here. But I suspect that when it comes right down to it, we don't really, at a deep level, believe that this is true. And I want to tell you why I think that. Now, fair warning here. Um, I am probably going to break down in tears at this point, and uh, it's going to be very embarrassing for me. It's going to make it hard for me to proceed. My voice is going to get all squeaky, which I hate, and it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Fair warning, that's how it's going to be. But I have to tell you the context in which I first understood this passage. So it starts. Don't worry, I have tissues. We're good. I was going to a large church in Chicago full of uh, very successful people. 
Uh, this is you know, heads of Christian publishing houses, uh, brilliant professors at this Christian college, uh, successful business people, uh, a very uh, successful church in, in a lot of different ways. And uh, one Sunday, uh, there was a group of about 25 men and women, here it comes, uh, with cognitive disabilities ranging from Down syndrome to autism and a whole bunch of different things. So imagine that on the platform of this really buttoned-up church, really successful-looking, and they read this verse. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And somehow, I finally understood what he's talking about. Because it's a gut check to see, do I actually believe what is being said here? Not just that, yes, the body has different parts and they're all needed. Not just, yes, we belong together. But do I actually believe the truth of this? That God has put us together. That he has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. That those parts that I would label weak, he labels indispensable. See, it's a gut check. Because we live in a world that values production and capability. And the more your talents are seen as valuable and productive in line with all of that stuff, the more worth we assign you. Our our heroes, those we look up to and those who make it on the TV screen, are those we perceive to be the best. And the hard thing is it's easy for the church to start to follow that same path and adopt those same values. And so as there is celebrity culture outside of the church, there becomes celebrity culture inside the church as well. We want to hear the best preachers and the best musicians. We want to read the best books. And I'm not discounting that there are some very gifted people who God has gifted for the good of the larger church. And I have some of their books. I listen to some of their sermons and these kind of things. But it can quickly change the values of what God has established within the church. See, God's estimation is different than ours. He forms a church where the flashiest function doesn't mean the most worth. He takes those that we would very quickly label as lesser or weaker, and he labels them indispensable, needed, vital. He gives them a place. He takes those who who wouldn't have been chosen, and he elevates them, and he makes them one with everyone who's a follower of Jesus. Now, here's the part that I'm worried that we never really understand And this is where I'm really going to break down. These seemingly weaker parts of the church are not just some charity case. They don't drag the church down from how awesome we could otherwise be. All have been given gifts by God, supernaturally by the power of his spirit, for the good of the church. And when we are wise enough to pay attention to those, we will see beautiful things. Let me tell you a couple things that I saw working with a disability ministry of my church. I walked into the Sunday school classroom for the first time, and I was uh, a little nervous, uh, not sure what to expect. I didn't know anyone there. And um, my friend David... It's going to take a while, I'm sorry. My friend David, who has Down syndrome, came immediately up over to me. I hadn't met him before. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know why I was there. But he saw that I felt out of place. And he made me feel welcome. 
And every single Sunday that I saw him, he made me feel welcome. Now, two years together, and he still could never quite remember my first name, but every single Sunday, he made me feel welcome. Or another man named Tim had an amazing ability to entertain. He decided that he was going to mispronounce my wife's name as Enemy. And every single Sunday, he greeted her as Enemy. Brought a smile to my face every single time. She loved it too. Or a woman named Diane, every single Sunday, with wonder in her face, said, God loves us so much. What a great reminder to me. Every single week, week in and week out, looking at her face and saying, yes, this is true. God loves us so incredibly much. Without these men and women, the church suffers. It's missing vital parts. And if we devalue people like this, if we feel like they don't have anything to offer and so we just kind of ignore them or, or patronize them, the church suffers. God has given them gifts for the good of all of this. And that's the kind of church that Paul is pointing to. Look again at verse 26. I have never seen this as powerfully as I did with the community within that disability ministry. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. See, it's a church that's tied together, that knows that they belong to one another, that they are part of one another. They recognize that, yes, we need each other. We are in this together. God has brought us together. It's a church that's striving to live together with love and care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12 is an incredible vision for the church. It's recognizing who the church is called to be. We are those who have been drawn together by God in the name of Jesus, who have been empowered by his Spirit, and who are called to live well together, to love each other, to care for each other, to encourage one another. And when that happens, the church then lives as one healthy body. And that is exactly why I have great hope for the church, even when my generation is very rapidly losing its hope that the church could do anyone any good. See, that perception changes if the church will live up to what we are called to do, if we'll get back to the foundation that we are those who are called in the name of Christ, those who have been rescued by him, by his work on the cross, who have been transformed and are being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we live together as one healthy, functioning body, diverse in all of our functions, but all of us together using our gifts for the common good, for one another, to build one another up, that's when we change that perception. It's when we actually live out the calling that we've been given by God. But it requires that we actually have to live it out, and that is hard work. God has put us together just like he wants us to be, but that doesn't mean that it's easy because we are still sinful humans who are very imperfect, and, and we often buck against what we are called to do. But this is what we are called to do, and he has empowered us for this. And I love to see glimpses of this within the church. I've seen it in this community of faith where people actually do care about one another. You're using your gifts in ways that are, that are building others up and, and caring for one another. I love to see that. That's what we need to, to be more and more as a community of faith. 
We're called to live together in love. But the, but the big question is, how do we actually do this? The starting point is to read a passage like this, to read the, the picture of what the Bible gives of, of what the church is, and is to understand that. These people around you aren't just peripheral to your faith. They are the, the outworking of your faith. We, we live side by side with these other people because they are now our family. They are brothers and sisters called to live out as a community of faith the values of the cross. And when we get that, then the next step is to actually live it out. And when this happens organically, it's a beautiful thing. I've seen this in a few different contexts. But the downside is that it doesn't always happen organically. There are often people who are left out on the fringes. So we're trying to find ways of, of connecting different people into Christian communities so that we can actually live this out. I mean, the truth is that, that a bunch of us don't know a bunch of us. We don't know the gifts that God has given us. We don't know the struggles of our hearts. We don't know the joys of our heart. It's hard for us to really live out the kind of Christian community that the Bible calls us to. So as we're getting bigger, we also have to get smaller and get into to groupings and, and start to, to live out Christian community, to live life together in smaller groupings. So I want to give you just one thing we're doing that you'll see in the next couple weeks here uh, toward that end. Um, a lot of you know what small groups are. We're relaunching small groups in a couple week here, weeks here. And this isn't a cure-all. This isn't going to you know, make Christian community magically happen or get everyone connected or anything like that. But it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to start living out the Christian life together, to start living in Christian community, to be opening scripture together, reading it together, studying it together, to be stopping and praying together and finding out uh, what the concerns of our hearts are, lifting them up to God before us, and then together to be reaching out to those who don't yet know Jesus and to be drawing them in so they can see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we'll be watching for that in the next couple weeks. Again, that's not a, it's not a solution to us, but it's one of the ways that we're trying to be intentional about actually living this out together as a church. Because listen, this matters. It's not just, be, I don't just get choked up because disability ministry is very close to my heart. I get choked up because Christian community matters deeply. How we live together matters, not only for uh, drawing us to increasing Christ-likeness and, and helping us to follow Jesus together, but also as an incredible witness to the people around us who don't yet know Jesus. To that 45% of my peers who think that the church is never going to do anyone any good. But if they see us living together, living out the values of the cross, living out the kind of life that Paul is, is envisioning here in 1 Corinthians 12, what an awesome testimony to the power of Christ. Because they will look at that and say, those people are different. They're, they don't love each other because they're all the same or they're from the same family, the same background. Something must have happened to them. It's a powerful testimony to the transforming power of the gospel and a powerful testimony to the truth that Jesus really does transform lives. That's what we are striving for as a church. Let me, let me pray over us, and I'm going to use the prayer that Jesus uh, gave, uh, prayed over his disciples the, in uh, John chapter 17 at the end of his earthly ministry. He recognizes the cross is before him, and he's praying that God would unify the believers. So in light of 1 Corinthians 12, I want to take up the prayer of Jesus and use it as a community of faith. Please pray with me. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. God, we do pray that you would make this true. We thank you for the incredible uh, picture of intimacy of, of Jesus and you, the Father. And we ask that your church would be a reflection of that, that we too would be united, not for our own glory, but for your glory, that people would see, look at us and see the glory of your Son. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.